do. Uh, this morning, what I want to do is I want to contemplate. Um, I want to contemplate the concept of confessional prayer, and um, and I want to and I want to think of it. Um, I think of it through the lens of like course correction or building strength of character, and I, and I do mean contemplate because like I'm just working some of these I, ideas out, and so we're contemplating this together. Not that it's going to be like a back and forth necessarily, but but I want I want to just go somewhere with you this morning and then see if it lands somewhere. And and I trust I believe it landed somewhere for me, so I'm trusting it's going to land somewhere, hopefully for you. Um, I spent a little bit of time, like you guys know, in in um, in Thailand and seeing some of the anti-human exploitation work that our denomination does there in, uh, in, in a couple different countries, and one of them was in, in Thailand, specifically in Phuket. And during my time there, um, I, wasn't exposed, I was exposed to, um, to an evil we all know exists, but, but it felt like I, I was one degree closer to it while, while we were there, just hearing the stories and seeing faces of people and, and, uh, and, and seeing places and stuff like that. And, um, and so I was exposed to this, this, this evil... Um, that we normally just hear about in the news and in gossip. And when you hear it in person, you see it in person, it, it, it um, hits in a different way. And, and you would know that too, right? Like you can hear about these things and they sound you know, bad, but when you see it, you know, it's like, oh, that, um, you start to feel things a little bit differently. And um, it's also interesting, uh, coincidentally, that right now, there's this like big popular movie out right now, it's called um, Sound of Freedom, and it's uh, about the topic of anti, uh, about human trafficking. And it's got, I don't know why there's controversy about a movie that is like anti-human trafficking. I feel like we should universally agree on that. So if you're seeing any news that's saying like, it's controversial and it's something about like, I don't know, I read something about how it's propaganda for the alt-right. It's like, that's just stupid. You need to unsubscribe to dumb newsletters who are telling you dumb things. Like it's just, it's a good movie apparently. And, I, and, I, and I'd like, I thought about maybe screening it sometime, but it's about that topic and it's interesting the timing of that topic just having come uh, home from Thailand like uh, a week or so ago. Anyway, um, when you're exposed to like evil or the most evil of evils, I think, I don't, and I don't want to say this casually, I don't, I can't think of something more evil than, um, you don't have to put that up yet, I can't think of something more evil than um, the, um, the sexual exploitation of a child. Like, I don't know if there is a category that's more evil than that. Like, I don't think, when you think about, like, an, an adult exploiting a, 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 an innocent, powerless child, I don't think there's, like, like, if there's an archetype for evil or there's an epitome of evil, I think we would probably agree, like, that would be, that would be it. That's where we start, and, and we compare all evil things to that, the most evil. I don't know about you, but I think, like, name something more evil than that, right? I, I don't think you can. So, so, um... So that's that was the exposure was kind of to the most evil of of evil, and um, I'm not saying um, I don't want to be light and casual this morning. I, I just want to make sure you know that um, that you have to remove the emotion from it to talk about it at all, right? Because if you if you um, if you get caught in the emotion of it, you can't go anywhere. And so in order to get anywhere today, I, ha I had to remove some of the emotion from it. But I also don't want to take it too lightly, and I don't want to speak about it too casually, because um, I imagine there are people even in the room who have been um, the, um, they've experienced that firsthand or directly in their family, and, and uh, it's a point of pain, and I don't want to re-traumatize, or I don't want to, um, I don't want to bring something up that, that creates a whole lot of new um, pain. I, I guess what, what I want to say before is that um, 
that you're seen, if this, is, if this is a part of your story or it's connected to you, you're known, you're loved, and um, you're grieved with, I guess. And, uh, and I apologize in advance for maybe talking about things um, at this level when for you it's like ground zero, maybe. But I bring it up, um, and, and I think we need to, to be able to talk about it. One, because of recent exposure, and two, um, because what really I'm wrestling with is how does somebody get there? And I think that's the question, how do people get there? How, how, do, how, do, how does somebody get to a point of um, behaving in the, um, in the most evil ways, right? Is maybe the, maybe it's the question and the, the contemplation. And, um, and I'm, not, I'm not quite sure necessarily how somebody reaches that point. And I think a lot of us, when we hear things on the news or we see things, we go, how can anybody possibly, right? And there's an answer, to, there are answers to that, but, but, but when you're kind of removed from it, you ask that question, how does anybody possibly get there? And then in God and his sovereignty, one of the, one of the questions we asked um, a group of young men that, that Mike and I are mentoring in this, in this kind of program called The Way was, what's like the one barrier to faith for you? Like what's the one thing that would be a struggle for you? And almost unanimously, these young men all answered the problem of evil and suffering, right? Like that's the one thing where you're like, if there's one thing that I struggle with and when it comes to faith in God, um, and trust in Jesus and the narrative of scripture, it's that an all-knowing, all-good God could allow evil in the world, right? That's kind of what they, what they would say. And, uh, and so we wrestle with that, and we wrestle with how does somebody, um, well, how does somebody reach that point? You wrestle with, you wrestle with the question of, um, like, are people born this way? Or, or are they, should we separate them? Should we treat people who, who, um, behave um, in a manner that we would classify as evil? Do we, do we, tr- do we tr- separate them out as an other them in some kind of way? And say, well, there's monsters who live among us. Because that's the easy thing to do sometimes, to just think some people are monsters and most aren't, right? It's easy to do that. Um, but that's hard to do because you've got a problem of like, well, if God creates everybody in his image and everybody, every human being is created in the image of God and loved equally by God, then, then you can't necessarily fully other people you can't separate them out as monsters and not, or evil and not, right? That's not necessarily, so, so you wrestle with that a little bit. Um, I'm using the language of evil and monster because, um, because when we think about this stuff and we think about um, the nature of it, we, we, uh, we have to put it in a category, right? Like, I think no matter what your religious affiliation is, whether you're religious at all, or maybe you're agnostic or atheist, you still, there's things in the world that you put in the category of, of evil, you have to, in order to make sense of it, there's a box you have to place certain things in uh, and, and, and to name it. And, and I think when it, came to, when it comes to um, a childhood exploitation like that, if there is a name to give it, it, it would be evil. So that's why we're using that, that um, language. And we're also using language for this morning for another reason. Um, Jordan Peterson, he said in an interview this week, I was watching with the makers of the movie Sound of Freedom, and he said that the only way to make sense of and deal emotionally with some tragedies in the world is to have a robust explanation of evil. And, and, uh, and that makes a lot of sense psychologically. Like the only way to not carry the full weight and burden and emotion of, of evil and tragedy when we're faced with it is to have a robust explanation of it. It's, it's a way to offload the weight from the individual because the individual can't really carry the full weight of it. And if you ask people who have experienced work in some fields like policing and like nursing and, uh, and like investigations or, or in the mission field, like if you ask them, like how do they, sh- how do they shoulder that weight? 
the only way that they possibly can, because it's so heavy, is to have an explanation of evil in order to um, in order to pass it on somewhere else. That makes sense to us too. Um, that we have somewhere to pass it on, and in Christian faith, we have that. We have that. Um, the robust explanation of evil is that there's a force that's really powerful. Use the language of Satan and evil, and, and, and that there's a God that's more powerful, and um, without that, I don't know how we would carry the, the weight of the, of the tragedy. Um, Jesus, he says something interesting in Matthew 18. He, um, he says, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, who takes the lowly position of a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. There's a lot of different ways to read this, but when I was reading this this week, what it seemed to communicate was not um, that Jesus wants us to become childish. Um, I think it's that maturity in faith, um, or just maturity in general, emotional maturity and spiritual maturity, um, results in a, almost a, a more simple and childlike faith. I don't know about you and your experience. My experience has been that... Um, like the, the the more the deeper I go into like rational thought and reading like r- rational things and like rational argumentation and, and reason and philosophy and stuff like that, the more I do that, um, coupled with exposure to like bad things and horrific stories and evil in the world, um, the idea of simple faith becomes way more appealing to me. And uh, and and maybe for you, I don't know what your story has been, but it's not. Um, mine hasn't been like a. Uh, stay blind and ignore all the content of the world to stay in our safe little box, right? It's, no, turn our eyes and face it and look at it and be exposed to it. But then how do I rest? How do I deal with it? How do I hold that? How do I manage that? The, the appeal of a simple faith becomes um, way more enticing. And I was thinking about this, like some of the greatest thinkers of our time, or not of our time, of previous times, like a guy named, a guy like um, a Frederick Nietzsche, one of, the, one of the most brilliant people to have lived, um, because he didn't have a robust explanation of evil and a simple faith to rely on, his life, because of his hyper-rationalism and exposure to darkness of the world, like his life just devolved into this like sad, weird, dark abyss. If you read any of his work, you're like, this is brilliant, and it's also terrifying. It's also, it's also dark, really dark, and there's nowhere for him to go because he didn't have necessarily the off-ramp of of simple faith. So that's kind of an example, and, and I think if you think about these things and you pay attention to them, you also probably um, probably can see that and can understand that. Uh, Paul echoes some similar sentiment. He echoes it in 2 Corinthians. He says this. He says, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardship, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There's a lifetime of wisdom in that. Uh, if, you could, if you could just stop and meditate on it for a bit. So a robust explanation for evil, one that holds up, it's not necessarily um, a complex or a perfectly nuanced one. It's one that relieves you from the weight of evil and, uh, and empowers you to live with, with, with some sort of normalcy or or balance. Now, how do we get there? Um, I want to read for us a, a parable, a lesser-known parable in the Gospel of Luke this morning. I just want to camp out there for a little bit because we're going to get to the topic of confession here. Luke eighteen nine to fourteen. Uh, it starts with um, it says to some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable. So he's speaking to a crowd 
that uh, was confident in their own righteousness. He's referring to, obviously, the Pharisees or people who are pharisaical in, in some way. And the assumption was um, for the Pharisees in the first context, in the first century context, the Pharisees were the really religious type who kind of like uh, not just like held the law for themselves, but actually maintained the law for everybody and, and, and kind of enforced in some kind of ways. And, uh, and so these were people who, who not only believed that holding... Um, um, sticking to the law and following the law is going to produce favor and blessing and righteousness in their life. They believed that. But they also believed that, um, that they would experience blessing if everyone else was pious. And they believed that everybody else who was not living the perfect righteous life that they were living or they would claim to be living was causing God's blessing to be withheld from them. And so you had this group of people who not only were were arrogant and prideful in their own righteousness, but they looked down on everyone and they were even mad at everybody else for not being as righteous and pious as they because it was their fault for God withholding his blessing. And if you know anything about the Jesus story, the people who um, Jesus spoke most directly to and against, <laughs> his greatest opposition was actually the Pharisees, the self-righteous types. So that's what's going on here. So then um, Jesus, he says this, this is the parable. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, not like stood by himself out in a f uh, off in a field alone, stood by himself like centered himself, right? And, and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, the robbers, the evildoers, the adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get, right? This is the Pharisee saying this, i.e., thank you, God, that I am, I'm, I'm other, I'm better, right? Everyone else is lesser than me, and thank you, God, for that. Now, I, I don't think he's um, saying, thank you, God, for the grace in my life to help me be this. Like a, you, know, you don't get that impression. You get the impression he's like, thanks, God, that, that I'm just better, right? And, uh, and so that's the first guy who prayed, and he prayed it in front of everybody, with the intention of making them all feel small, it would seem. And then the tax collector, um, in verse 13, but the tax collector stood at a distance, and he would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his own breast, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the Jesus responds uh, and says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. In other words, it was the tax collector's prayers who were heard. It was the tax collector who, um, who received blessing. It was the tax collector who was forgiven. It was the tax collector whose sins were paid for. It's the tax collector who would receive the blessings of the kingdom of God, not the self-righteous Pharisee, right? And then Jesus says, For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, what Jesus is saying here, this is important because our culture is getting this very wrong right now. Uh, Jesus is not saying that the tax collector is justified because of his sinfulness. Right? We live in this weird time where it's like we, we make fun of people who are trying to be pious and righteous, and, and we say, no, you know, Jesus was for the sinner. It's like, what well, Jesus was for the sinner in the respect that Jesus was for everybody who really understood and recognized their sinfulness. 
but, but he wasn't for the sin. It's not like because of his sin he was justified. It's not saying because he was a tax collector, because he did evil things, he was justified. It's important to note that because sometimes we get that a little bit confused in our cultural moment. We say Jesus is for the marginalized or Jesus is for um, the, the people who are not doing the righteous things. And, and that's, not, that's not what Jesus is for. It's not what he's saying. It's talking about the humble, those who recognize their faults, those who recognize their shortcomings, those who um, are willing to humbly uh, repent. That's who Jesus is for, and that's who the kingdom of God is for. And the anticipation, the expectation is that the repentance leads to, um, or the confession leads to some level of repentance and turning away from that sin, rather than just the claim of no sin at all. One of the things I've been considering through this teaching season in prayer, we've talked about this, is... um, whether or not prayer changes anything. We, we keep coming back to this. Does it change anything? And, um, and what we keep saying, and we're going to do this again, we're going to shelve this, we're going to say that the scripture is very clear that um, prayer changes things. The scripture is very clear that uh, people of God can petition God and that circumstances may change and God may act as a result of, of our prayer, of our ask, of our petition. Right? It's very clear. There's no way around it in scripture. Old Testament, New Testament, that's what scripture says, and we believe that in faith, and we trust that, and you may have experience with that. Shelve that. What we know for a fact um, as well is uh, that prayer changes you. Right? Ch- prayer changes the individual. Prayer changes the person praying. And, uh, and so then the question for me, at least recently, in kind of all this contemplation is how and in what way does prayer change me or does prayer change us? And so tying this back to what we started with this morning, does prayer, specifically confessional prayer, does it um, have the ability or the power to change anyone? And or not just change them, form them, but also um, prevent anyone from doing or becoming what we would classify as, uh, as evil, right? That's at least that's the question I'm asking this morning, and I invite you to ask that with me. The more that we study the mind and the behavior of those who have done the worst things in our society, um, you know, you, you, you watch all these true crime. Anybody into true crime? It's okay to admit it. Yeah, I, knew, I figured. Yeah, you're right. That's right. No, I'm kidding. I think you're, my wife loves the true crime too. You're into true, oh, the three of you. Interesting. Hmm. Do you guys hang out or something? Um, anyone else into true crime to really, okay. So, okay. We're all into true crime, aren't we? Okay, fine. We're all, right? Um, actually, it's mostly the women putting up their hands. And that's actually true. There's a study that shows that women are, are, are far more into the true crime podcasts and TV series than men. I don't know the reason why. There's probably a reason why. The psychological, maybe the risk of, of, of anyway, we won't get into that. So that's funny though, right? Um, this is the true crime, right? So, so people um, today study those people, who the, who the stories are about, who the documentary is about. And there's a few things that we've learned about them. Uh, one of them we'll, we'll, we'll build on for our purposes this morning. Uh, one of, but one of the things that we do learn is that oftentimes for people who do the worst of the worst things, the things that if we were to classify anything as evil, it would be that thing, oftentimes we know that um, uh, their innocence was stolen from them from a young age, right? They were exposed to something from a young age. Um, there, there was something that chipped away at their their ethic or their conscience or their being and their identity from a young age, right? So that's one thing we know most of the time is the case. The second thing is that, um, well, they never start with the most evil actions, do they, right? They never start there. It's not like one day they turn the corner and they just start doing crazy, evil, wild things, right? 
it's always, um, there's always like a long progression. There's always like steps towards a little bit more risk and, uh, and then like not getting caught or safety there and then like a tiny little step and like, like living on the edge, you know, of morality and then a little step and then a little step and then, and then, and, and then all of a sudden they're over here doing like the most horrible evil thing but it's not like they just started there. It's not like they're an other. It's not like they're a monster and they're just equipped to do that and they always have been. It's, it's always a progression of steps, a bunch of tiny little steps in the direction to a point of, of doing what we would classify or, clear, um, or, um, or define as, as really evil. The most heinous things, the most heinous actions are the result of years and years and years of minor steps. And if you read history, you know that too, right? Like historically, the most horrible things that have happened to large groups of people in, you know, the last hundred years, um, like they're, they didn't start there. There's always steps in that, in, in, a, in a direction that lead to, uh, to, to those things. And this what made me think about, um, like these small steps of risk and exposure and experience, um, when they go unconfessed, when they go unrecognized, when they go unrepented, that's what ends up um, leading to like the next step of, of risk, right? And, uh, and, and so, and so uh, w- the missing piece there, because we all do this, might actually be um, confession. The missing piece there might be the, um, the lack of light being shone on us and the act of true repentance um, that leads to that. And then it makes me question, like, why are we all, are we all susceptible to that? Because you've got to shine the light on yourself, and you've got to ask the question, are you susceptible to that? And, and you know, let me ask you, because this is true, like, um, we know that this is true of us in our own behavior and our own actions instinctively. Like, nobody cheats on their wife the second day of the honeymoon, right? Not nobody, but probably, like, most people who do end up, like, doing something like that, it's, it's not day two of the honeymoon, right? It's always like little steps towards something and all of a sudden they're doing something. It's like, I, that's not who I was 10 years ago. I, never, I, I didn't say that on my wedding day. I meant what I said on my wedding. I believe that's who I was. And all of a sudden they're there. You don't, you're not addicted to gambling after your first pull of a 25 cent slot, right? Like it's, it's exciting. It's exciting and addicting, isn't it? But, but you're not addicted to it then, right, you wouldn't call someone who, like, just pulled a slot machine once a, a gambling addict, right? It's like these tiny little steps, a little bit more money spent, a little bit more risk, a, a little bit more reward, more dopamine hits as a, as a result of the reward for the risk, and then it's a step further, step further, step further, and all of a sudden, you're stuck in addiction, right? Same is true of alcoholism. Like we know that alcoholics aren't, it's, it's not like day one, you have a glass of wine, and day two, you're an alcoholic, Right? It's a lot of steps in between, small little ones. And that's just human, that's just human nature. It is human nature. And uh, the reality is it's human nature for, for all of us. Years of unchecked, eroded consciences um, and an unrepentant pattern of behavior it, it, it's, it ultimately leads to um, a version of you you didn't expect to ever become or, or choices that you make that you never expected that you would make. The kind of um, lifestyle that your younger inner child or maybe the image of God in you would, would say, that's, that's not who I am. 
but without humble confession, we all end up doing and saying that which our earlier ethics and consciences wouldn't even consider, wouldn't even allow us to. They would, they would never want to be that. You ask a child who they want to be and a teenager who they want to be and what they want to do, and they don't describe sometimes the version who they end up becoming in 10 years, right? I've been doing youth ministry for a long time to see that pattern, and, and, uh, and it's, not that, it's not that one of them is the truer version of themselves. It's not like, oh, all along they were a monster, right? That's not true. They were, they were a beautiful child made of the image of God who was loved by God, who was sincere in what they thought and they believed, and they did 10 years prior. There's a lot of steps towards it. And we do this societally, too. Like, I don't know about you, but has anybody in the last year asked the question, how in the world did we get here? Right? Like, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, there's, there's things where, like, okay, I'm confused. What, when, when did that become the norm? Because that wasn't the norm, like, a second ago. Or, like, when did that become celebrated? Because it just... It, I'm not sure it should be. I don't know when I'm supposed to think about it, but it wasn't 10 minutes ago, and things have changed a lot. And you're like, how did things change so much, right? In, in such a small period of time, things used to take generations to change, and all of a sudden, we feel like we're living in a different world. You might, you might have teenage kids, and you're like, I don't know them. I don't, even, I don't even know how to relate to them because their world is so different than the one I grew up in. And you may have even grown up here. Like, I went to public school here. I'm not that old. I went to public school in Meadowvale, and like, I, I'm like, what in the world? It's a different world, right, for a teenager today. And I'm not that far removed. So these things happen societally too, don't they? I think one of the great challenges is, um, in regards to prayer, is that um, we have abandoned the, not just the principle and the concept of, but the practice of confessional prayer. Right? The Catholics still say that they do it, but you know most of your Catholic friends <laughs> you know, been haven't been to confession in a decade, right? So, but, but at least there's still like some sort of conversation about it, right? You know, and the whole weird thing where it's like, okay, here, pray these seven things and this four things and play with this necklace or something. Like that. I don't mean to be crass, but I just don't understand it, right? It's like, that'll solve your problems. No, it doesn't solve your problem. But at least the value for confessional prayer, at least it's still talked about. In the evangelical church, it's like, we don't even talk about it at all. Barely, barely talk about it. And it's like, and the safe thing is, okay, pray, confess to God, do not confess to one another, because like you might lose your position and authority and stuff like that, right? Because we're, we're um, well, we're pretty self-righteous, right? And so what it does is actually, um, it creates a bunch of Pharisees, right? It, like it's, it, the system is created to produce the Pharisee, Right? At least I think it is. And that's what you see in churches and you see in pastors and leaders and stuff like that too, right? Like it's, it's unsafe to confess because of the way the system's built. So we don't. Well, what happens? You see a pastor and you're like, how the hell did a pastor do that? Not just a, not just a dude, a pastor. How did he do that? Because he knows better, right? Confession, right? We, can be del- we become delusional about who we truly are, about our actions, about our idolatry, and about our self-righteousness. We, we, um, we think that we can hide ourselves from God. We think that we can hide ourselves from others, when in reality, we're just hiding from ourselves. Sky Jathani, he says this in his book on prayer, and I thought this was really, really helpful. Um, in his book on prayer, he says, if Jesus was serious about prayer, 
then confession is how we shatter our illusions about ourselves. He goes on to say that confession grows into God's, grows us into God's likeness by first seeing and admitting what is unlike God in us. That's what confession does, right? And that's why it's so essential. That's why it's so, um, it's so foundational to the life of the believer and the life of um, the praying person who wants to grow into the image of God. Confession is the, is the light being shone on how separate we are from God, how we are unlike God in so many ways, because the, the easy thing to do is to think of ourselves as righteous, self-righteous and like God. And, and, and the act of confession, the very act of confession is so humbling, so humiliating, that it does first show us how unlike God we actually are. And in order to become like God, in order to grow in Christ's likeness, that's where we need to start. We need to start seeing that. And that's what confession does to us. C.S. Lewis, he said it this way. We must lay before him what's in us, not what ought to be in us. And I don't know about you, but man, it's so much easier to like pray what ought to be in me <laughs> than to actually pay attention to what truly is you hear the righteous prayers of saints and oftentimes it's just filled with what they know sh- should be said or they know should be true of, of them. And we do this too. We all do this, right? This, so the, the Pharisee, what he did is he prayed what ought to be in him. And the tax collector, in his humility, he prayed for what was truly in him. So then for us, the question is, what does it look like for you to spend time with God in confession, allowing him to reveal what's truly in you? What I don't want to do this morning, I know that we started the conversation with like a lot of evil, and I don't want to do is, I don't want to um, su- suggest that um, your, your evil, your sin is the same as the evil that we described earlier. I don't think that's helpful. I think in some Christian circles where they're like, all evil is the same in God's eyes, all sin is the same in God's eyes. And it's like, you're just as dirty, rotten a sinner as people who do really evil things. I'm like, well, you're probably like 800 steps, like not there yet, right? Like you might get there. You probably have the, 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 the propensity to or the ability to get there, but you're not. So let's not equate your sinfulness and your lack of repentance with the most evil of evil things. I want to make sure you know I'm not suggesting that through this conversation. But, but what I am suggesting is that the, what the scripture constantly uh, forces us to do is to turn a light back on ourselves. And when we're exposed to tragedy in the world and we're exposed to brokenness in the world, what we want to do is we want to take a step of action and solve the injustice, which is a good thing. I think God's put that in us. But what we often um, will do is uh, we will avoid the actual harder work, which is turning the light on ourselves and asking the question, um, who am I? Where am I at with God? What is the sin that I need to confess of so that I can properly be prepared to take on um, the challenges of the world? So confessional prayer, it's the inward-looking prayer. It's the inward-looking work. And the blessing of confessional prayer is strength of character. The blessing of um, confessional prayer is what we read earlier about Christ's um, strength being manifest in us, in our weakness, right? So that's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, in my weakness, then I am strong. In my inability to control the pain of the world, in my inability to actually um, withstand the attacks, the accusations, uh, my inability to actually solve the problem of evil in the world, my inability to actually um, uh, uh, fix uh, the tragedies in front of me, uh, uh, 
that's my weakness, and, and Christ is, is made strong in us um, in the midst of our weakness, um, our, our inability to actually fix the problem of our own sin. That's where Christ's strength is made and is found. It's in our weakness. I was walking down Bangalore Road in Phuket. Bangalore Road um, is a weird, weird mix of considerations, some which I didn't anticipate. Um, Bangalore Road is um, the, the, the kind of the ground zero in Phuket for the tourist-funded sex um, industry. It's kind of like if you, if you were to go anywhere in Phuket for, for what people tend to go there for, um, it would be Bangalore Road. You'd know you can get it and in abundance. And I won't describe the atmosphere to you, but um, the place was the kind of place you can pay for whatever you want, and there's no legal consequence for it. You can imagine what was behind closed doors and curtains as you're walking down just a, a public street by a beautiful beach. And I anticipated, um, I anticipated grieving the workers that were there. I anticipated grieving the fact that we knew that on the other side of the curtain, some people uh, were, were actually there against their own will, like physically. I anticipated grieving that. I anticipated grieving that there were people who were not as old as they said they were so that they could legally be there. And, and that, was, that was heavy to just process and consider because that was true in its reality. And then I agree with the fact that you can't really do anything. Like you, you can't, it's not as <laughs> you can go there guns a-blazing, right? It's like machine gun preacher where you're just like, ah, let's go in and, and take over the world, right? <laughs> you can't do anything and that, that's heavy to just walk and be like, what do I do here, you know? So that was heavy, and, and, I, and I anticipated that, and I did grieve. It broke my heart, and it would break yours, but here's what I didn't anticipate. I didn't anticipate also grieving the mostly men who were there from all over the world that were creating the demand. I didn't anticipate grieving that. I didn't anticipate actually um, empathizing with them, right? Because they're the monster, right? And there's the... There's a perpetrator and the victim, right? And I'm not supposed to grieve um, for the monster, right? I grieve the victim, and and that's and that's um, I don't know if that's wrong, but what I what I what I felt at least was um, that what I'm witnessing is just men who have acted out years and years and years and years of an eroded conscience, right, and led to a certain point. It's not like I was witnessing others. I was witnessing, like, me with 10 years of an eroded conscience and abandoning God and a lack of self-reflection, right? I, 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 I was witnessing myself 10 years removed from confessing my sin and repenting of my sin. That's all I was witnessing. I was, I was literally witnessing um, myself, like, just taking small, tiny steps, in a certain direction to a point of going, like, where did I go? Who am I, right? That's, that's what I was, and so I was trying to understand that and grieve that, and I hate that God does this. God does this to me all the time, and, and I hope he does this for you, and I hate that he does it, but I'm thankful that he does it. Um, he, he, he reveals to me at least, like, constantly, like, you just want to, you just want to fight the injustice. You just want to be the hero, right? <laughs> you just want to go somewhere and be the hero, and, um, and God, he just doesn't let you always be, the, God's the hero. He doesn't let you be the, you're not the hero. You are, you are just as broken and you're just as susceptible. And, 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 the, and the heroic thing is, is not going and saving the people necessarily. That's heroic and God uses people to do that. But the, the heroic thing is actually like being formed in Christ. The heroic thing is actually like turning a light on yourself. It's a heroic thing. 
And uh, God doesn't let you just do the, do the, do the work of, of fixing the problems in the world until uh, he properly does a work in you, right? And so I hate it because that sucks all the time. Doesn't it? It's exhausting. It's emotionally toilsome. It's painful. It's frustrating. It doesn't feel like you're getting anywhere. But that's, that's what God does. And, uh, and, he, and he ought to. Because I, like you, I'm a, I'm a decade away of, of small, risky steps living on the edge of the ethic of Jesus um, before I can turn around and just look at myself and go, who the heck are you, man? Where, how did you get there? Why do you want this, right? Tyler Staten, in his book, I, I didn't promise this would be a light Sunday, I'm sorry. Um, Tyler Staten, in his book, Praying like monks, living like fools. He talks about fidelity at the end of the book. And uh, really, this, what he means by fidelity is that in the context of um, prayer, um, faithful practice and rhythms of prayer are necessary in order to be faithful in a relationship to God. And, and he says this, I just thought this was really, really powerful. And I hope you live with this. Like, I hope you don't just write this down and think of this a thought for the week, but I hope this is a thought for your life. And if you're a teenager in the room, this is a thought for your life. And you need to write this one down and shove it in your pocket and take it everywhere you go with you. Um, he suggests that we center our life according to a disciplined rhythm of, of rhythm of prayer because fidelity is the soil that love grows in. Fidelity is the soil that love grows in. Fidelity is hard, right? Fidelity is hard. We know this about marriage. We know this about relationships. It's fidelity where love grows. And obviously infidelity where it doesn't. And infidelity, again, isn't the big step of evil, of cheating on your spouse. Infidelity is all the small steps eroding the Spirit of God in you and your awareness of his voice in your life to a point where you do that. That's infidelity. And fidelity, on the other hand, is a consistent practice and rhythm of repentance and confession so that you don't end up there. Fidelity in confession is the soil that the kingdom of God actually grows in. There is no kingdom of God growth in your life and through your life without the, without the soil of fidelity in your life, consistency in, with God and a rhythm and a practice of his presence and of repentance. Fidelity is a soil in which righteousness grows. Righteousness isn't the, here's the quick fix pill, thank you, I fixed the problem. I was talking with someone um, recently and it was like, hey, do you, have a, do you have a solution to my problem? And, and, and I frustrate people and, because I, I don't often have a solution to, sometimes there's a good solution, but oftentimes there's not. The solution is like consistent, steadfast, patience and love and generosity and forgiveness and blah, blah, boring, hard, lame. How do we change the world? Stay faithful to your spouse. Well, that's no fun, right? How do we change the world? Be a present dad, right? That's no fun. How do we change the world? Spend time in prayer on a regular, more regular basis than you do right now. That's oh, it's no fun, but fidelity is the soil where love actually grows. So this week, you're invited to contemplate your, for yourself what confession ought to look like in regards to your life with Jesus. And then you have a chance this week to decide to come back to Jesus through confession, allow him to reveal what is unlike God in you in order for you to grow in Christ 
likeness, and it may feel a little bit like you're becoming a child again, right? Sorry, God, for my sins. Please forgive me, God. Oh, I'm so weak. I'm so bad. I can't, still can't fix this. I still can't. It may, you may, you may, it may feel like you're childish again, but at least the truth of Scripture and from all the experience that we see in the world that that is the process in which Christ uses to form us and ultimately use us to bring about the kingdom of God. His rhythms, patterns, practices of confession so that we can become like Christ and be the kingdom of God in the town that we're in and in the world that we're in. So that's the invitation. I just want to leave this with you, the, the verse that we read. This, is, this was Jesus' words about the tax, collector, the, the, the tax collector in the parable. He said this, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And we just need to get more comfortable using that language and saying that about ourselves. Um, this is just a short little prayer here at the end here. If you're wrestling with where to start, you can just start here. You don't have to name specifics if you're not there yet, but... Um, Merciful God, I confess that I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what I have done and what I have left undone. For you, it might be what you've done. It might be a little uh, a choice that's on the edge of what you think is good and you've made that decision. Maybe for you, that's what it is. Maybe for you, it's God's been saying to you over and over again, do this, do this, do this, do this. This is good for you. This is what I have for you. This is what I've called you towards. This is what's best for you. You can do this. You can serve in this way. You can give in that way. You can support in that way. You can help in that way. And you just keep saying no. Maybe for you, um, the repentance is for ignoring God's invitation in your life to do, to step into, to live faithfully, to grow. And maybe that's the repentance for you. Um, I invite you into that. Let me pray. We're very over time, so I'm going to pray. We had a last song. Um, we're going to do the last song. We're just going to, I know it's kind of awkward because it's like, let's just sing and feel better because <laughs> that's what I want, but we don't have time to do that and our kids' workers actually need you to grab your kids as soon as possible. So let me pray and then uh, we will throw music on the background, grab your kids and you can hang out as long as you want um, after that or you can go if you need to. Lord Jesus, I am... I am conscious, I'm, I'm aware at least right now, Lord, that um, these truths, these principles, this wisdom that you offer us through your word and through our experience of the body of Christ is not just the religious thing. This is the way to life and life to the full. And, um, and that this is not intended to be an oppressive thing. This is intended to be a freeing thing. Lord, I am, I am more convinced than ever that confession is... Um, is the, is the doorway to freedom. And that confession is the doorway to justice. And that confession is the doorway to the kingdom of God. That confession is the doorway to uh, restoration. Uh, that confession is the doorway to, to the kingdom of God here in Milton, Lord. That, that if we can start like the humble tax collector, just start there. We don't, have to, we don't have to whine about it. We don't have to like say what we don't actually think. We just need to recognize the reality of ourselves, not be disillusioned by who we actually are, where we're actually at in regards to you, and then ask you to form us and to grow us. Like If we can start there, Lord, I am so convinced, Lord, that you're going to use this community and this body to, to bless this city and bless this world in ways that we can't even comprehend or fathom. I trust that, Lord, and it starts here with us. It starts with us. 
And um, we're asking for your spirit. We're asking for the spirit of God to be with us, to comfort us, to love us, to show us grace and mercy as we ask for it and we pray for it. And, um, and then to also show us the path forward, to show us the thing that you may be inviting us into for a long time that we keep ignoring. Maybe it's the way of righteousness that we keep ignoring, or maybe it's like a really good adventure, a good kingdom missional adventure that we just keep setting aside, thinking maybe that's for later in life. Lord, I pray that, I pray that even in our time this week that you reveal some of those things to us, not just the, the things that we do that are that aren't in accordance with your goodness and your ethic, but the, the things we keep saying no to that are really the adventure of the kingdom of God that you have for us. Lord, I'm excited about that, and I'm excited to hear about the way that you'll speak to this community individually and then us collectively as a community this week and going from here. Help us become people of confession. Make it a safe space for confession in this community so that we can really grow in your likeness together as a body of Christ here in Milton, serving your people here and, and, and also globally. Lord, we love you, we trust you, we follow you, and we, um, we thank you for your grace and your mercy that's endless. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, amen.